Job chapter 28. This is a marvelous little chapter tucked away in the middle of the book. All right, please pay attention to God's Word. It was written thousands of years ago, but written with you in mind, God's perfect mind. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron's taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind and they swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. And stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path, no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the roots and his eyes see every precious thing. Dams up the streams so that they do not trickle. The thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought. For gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. And precious onyx or sapphire gold and glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. 
when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain, a way for the lightning of the thunder. And he saw it, declared it, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask humbly that your spirit would work to shed light, to increase life in our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, If you have not been paying attention to the news, I wouldn't blame you. 2020 has, I think, probably been a rough year for our country in many ways. I mean, the fact that we had murder hornets and they're no longer even being discussed because we have more pressing things says a lot about the year. The most pressing of this week, I guess, in many ways, has been the protests taking place nationwide. I think almost uh, half of the uh, continental U.S., half of the states, the continental U.S. have had protests of some kind in the last 48 hours, some of them having riots so bad uh, that they've been burning government buildings and shooting protesters. It's a terrible thing. Uh, that can't be um, underemphasized. The thing I, I think as I, I watch those every time we have protests or riots of this sort, I tend to have one kind of big picture thought that sticks in my brain all of the time. Uh, it's that picture right before Jesus enters into Jerusalem in Luke. And he looks down on Jerusalem, he looks down on the Jews and says, oh, if you only knew the things that made for peace. (laughs) Oh, if you only knew the things that made for peace. The Prince of Peace is standing just outside the city while they continue about their business, missing out on the good life. As I think about the videos that we've been able to see this week or the stories that we've read of the various crimes that have been committed on whichever side by whichever person does not honestly matter for this part of it. I tend to think about it from that perspective of here we have a nation uh, and certainly here people that are willing to act on that that are attempting to find the good life. Now, that may be breaking into a target and taking all of their stuff and going away and thinking that all of that financial wealth will provide the good life. It may be protesters that are trying to provide uh, or to accomplish uh, physical peace and safety for them and their families. That's maybe what they're trying to accomplish. It might be those that are seeking to improve a a national discourse between various political parties or uh, representatives of the various sides. It could be those that are just looking for a more wholesome relationship with the police. There could be a million different uh, motivations that are taking place here. But in some way, I I tend to think of all of them as they're people that are looking for the good life. 
And some of them, I think, probably doing a very noble job. I know certainly uh, Governor McMaster praised the folks in our capital yesterday. But so many of them, I, I think, are in a really hard place, in a hard way. Because so much of life in the American life has been reduced to a, a, an understanding and a belief of this is all there is. That this life, this moment that we have, this is all that life has to offer. You know, that atrocious youth slogan a number of years ago of you only live once and trying to capture all of the momentum of youth, which was a terrible slogan. I hated it then, I hate it now. But so much of this kind of American movement of I need to have the good life and I need to have it now. Perhaps we might even go so far as to say I deserve to have the good life and I deserve to have it now. The problem is, as our country has demonstrated over and over and over again, we don't know what the good life actually is. So that when we have folks that are like, well, I, I, I need to have that good life. I, I deserve to have life as it's supposed to be. We don't know what that means. Well, it means that you can't tell me what to do. Well, we hold that until somebody does something we don't like or hurts us. And then, well, no, we need somebody to tell us what to do. Or it means that I'm able to say whatever I want to say. Until somebody says something terrible and genuinely atrocious and, and it screams fire inside a movie theater. And then, oh no, we need someone to tell us what to say. We, we've yet to figure out the good life. It's interesting, Job chapter 28, I think, is a commentary on this search tucked away in the middle of the book. It's uh, a chapter, again, that gives commentators a bit of fit, a bit of a fit as it's uh, really kind of thematically a bit different than everything that's happened prior and honestly a bit different than what happens after. The book, as you're familiar with at this point, is introduced with Job going through spectacular suffering, the kind that uh, I truthfully can say I'm a coward I hope I never experience. Losing ten kids in a moment, and uh, no, I never wish to experience and after a period of mourning and grieving, he enters into dialogue with his friends, where his friends basically in various um, ways and various fashions presume God's mind and presume God's heart and presume God's plan and say to Job, look, Job, you are suffering in this way because God is mad at you because you've done something wrong. Rather than offering the assurance of pardon, they lead with the statement of need. Rather than leading with your God's beloved child, he's covenanted to care for you in this great trouble. He will be with you. Instead of that, they lead with you have this trouble because you are evil. Of course, Job defends himself, and he is correct in his reading. He might actually over-argue, which is what I'm going to suggest in a coming sermon, that he, he argues his case a bit too aggressively. 
But he contends all along that he's right and righteous, he's blameless, he hasn't committed great evil and has not earned this judgment. The conversation between them breaks down even to the point where they're in name-calling mode. Zophar doesn't even get his final speech. Job ends it in chapter 27, and then it's punctuated with this kind of new and resounding tone in chapter 28. It's not identified who's speaking, and it's such a happy and positive, maybe not happy, but positive tone, and so peaceful. It's given commentators fits. I think here what it is is Job's commentary on his situation and commentary on his friends. We're going to look at three specific negatives followed by one specific positive. This chapter is a a chapter answering the question, where is wisdom to be found? And obviously the the looming kind of awkwardness in the mind of the reader and certainly in the mouth of Job is that he's implying that it's certainly not found in his friends. They've been sitting with him and grieving with him, but then they've been telling him that, Job, we know God's mind for you. He's mad at you because you did something wrong. And and Job said, I didn't, so he's not. I'm his beloved child. Chapter 28 continues then with, well, if wisdom is not found in the friends, where is wisdom to be found? Verses 1 through 11, it begins with a subject that kind of from our reading as postmodern folks living in 2020 uh, in a culture that's filled with murder hornets and COVID-19 doesn't immediately reach out and grab us. It should, but it doesn't. He begins with, surely there's a mine for silver and a place for gold. And we're like, great, Job. Thank you. Discussion of wisdom. And you begin it with a conversation about mining. I'm so interested. Unless you get that part of YouTube and fall down that hole watching all of the mining techniques that are done. It's really interesting. He goes to explain how iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted and how it's made and they take the ore and heat it and uh, you know, melt it down so they can get the crud off the top and take the real metal and use it and then harden it and uh, make it into useful and realistic uh, tools and things that we can use. But for us, we, we read this and think, okay, kind of what of an, an, an odd and out-of-the-way sort of illustration. What Job is doing here is asking, where is wisdom to be found? Let me offer for you the cutting edge of industry and science. See, for us, mining is one of those things that for many of us, I think we probably immediately jump back and think of like, you know, the 1840s and the gold rush. Or we think of, you know, coal miners and we don't think of it as kind of cutting edge industry. Remember when this is likely being written is in the time of Abraham. It's not that far after the flood and Noah's kids are still alive. This is way back. One of the like first books written. What we're here having described is cutting-edge industry. 
It's cutting-edge science of how they figured out how to find the minerals under the earth. You realize that is a really difficult thing to do. I mean, if you sent me out and said, I'm going to give you five years and no Google, go find any mineral and mine it out of the earth, I would not be able to do any of it. I'd come back poor and hungry with nothing to show for it. Instead, here he's saying, look, if you go under the earth, this this amazing how mankind can apply their mind to figure out where we can find sapphires, we can figure out how to find gold. It's not even where birds can see it. No one knows how to get there. Even lions, this portrait of power, they can't find out where these things are. Yet man does. He puts his hand to the rock, and one of the ways that they used to uh, mine at this time is they would find hills that they knew had the ore in it, and they would superheat and then cool the rocks rapidly to make them shatter so they could get them off to look at what was underneath. Make super crazy fires on top of the rocks or in the rocks or if they could get under them at all, and then throw water on top of it and shatter the rocks so they could push them off. That really very clever, very clever. I would never figure that out. Cuts channels in the rocks and digs in again by hand to think about being able to do that without dynamite, without tools that we would want to use. It's hard enough trying to dig in Carolina red clay. I cannot imagine trying to mine, really genuinely mine by pickaxe. Oh, man. The significance of what he's saying here, though, is incredible as he's leading off with saying, look, where is wisdom supposed to be found? Where are you going to get it? Do you turn to cutting edge industry or science to provide wisdom? And what his answer here is, well, you may be able to figure out things that the, the animals can't. But No. No, as clever as mankind is, as clever as we are in God's image, just simply applying science and mathematics and industry is not enough to gain wisdom. We can solve all kinds of problems, but science can't tell us what the good life is. Science can tell us in many ways what's happening with the body, but it can't tell us how to live with that body. It can't explain to us the internal workings of the soul. Science and industry can only go so far. I think this is an incredibly appropriate point for our current kind of cultural moment. As right now, we're actually watching in the National Eye, and this has probably been appropriate two weeks ago, even more so, where everybody was saying, well, I believe in the science in a conversation about COVID-19. I believe in the science. I I love that. My immediate question that I want to ask is, what does that even mean? First off, what is the science? Science. I assume what you actually mean is you believe in the conclusions that were drawn from the data that was gathered through the various healthcare workers of some kind. I'm assuming that's what you mean. But instead, I believe in the science. I love watching the politicians try to take that view. 
How are we supposed to live? What does the good life look like for us now in the midst of worldwide disease? Well, the science can tell us what the good life is. No, it can't. It can tell you how you get sick and how you don't. But it can't tell you what the good life is. It can't tell you what makes life worth living. It can't tell you that. It, it can't provide answers to that. In fact, it can't even tell you how to spend your life in a way that is rewarding to you, that benefits you, that blesses you, that makes you holy, happy, healthy, and strong. The best they got is exercise and don't eat too much fried food. And I, I feel the most bad in this badly for the children. Because, kiddos, y'all are being raised in an era where our culture tells you, you must trust the experts. You must trust the experts. And the problem with that is that the experts have no better clue about it than anybody else. They just have more data. Attempting to draw better conclusions Science and industry can't be the end goal. In fact, if you want to watch this and think about it, think about how science is attempting to answer the question of where people came from in an effort to provide meaning. They've done such a brilliant job over the last hundred years of answering where people came from and how we have meaning that the suicide rate is the highest in our country it's ever been. Good job, science. You did a great job. Excellent. It's almost like you're not equipped to provide wisdom. Doesn't stop there. Make for a fun sermon if you did. Just take a shot at the entire, you know, American culture and move on. This one actually, I think, probably gets a little bit more personal for evangelicals. Uh, We tend to, uh, yeah, yeah. y'all may not know this, but many branches of the evangelical world tend to be fairly anti-intellectual anyways. (laughs) So uh, because many places in the American evangelical world were so anti-intellectual, that first point maybe doesn't hit quite as home uh, as it might because we just don't trust scientists in general. This next one, though, I think probably hits a little bit closer to home. We're verses 12 through 19. He presents another solution that people might be tempted to trust in. Not the science, not industry, not cutting-edge scientific discovery. Instead, wealth. What does the good life look like? Where can I find wisdom? Well, I will buy it. As long as it's for sale, I can have it. Where shall wisdom be found? Verse 12, where is the place of understanding? Well, a problem you can't buy it. Man doesn't know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. People will try to buy wisdom. But, verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold. And silver cannot be weighed as its price. Its value cannot be calculated in the gold of Ophir and precious stone or sapphire. Gold and glass, can't, you, you can't buy wisdom. Wisdom. 
I love watching how American culture completely 100% disagrees with this truth. God states it abundantly clearly here. It's perfectly stated. You cannot buy wisdom. Yet, the amazing thing that we watch in our culture constantly is that anytime we have questions about the good life or what it means to be wise or how we're supposed to solve our problems or how we're supposed to live, they always manage to interview the Hollywood elites. I I appreciate you interviewing that person to help me understand my political view. They didn't graduate from high school. I had more education at 15. Or they go to interview the mega rich about how their life how their life is is working for them. This one's been the intriguing one. I saw yesterday an article about uh, groups of celebrities that were beginning to pay bail uh, for post-bail for many of the folks that have been arrested up in Minnesota. Uh, And and it was intriguing because of the three that the first names that were listed, it was like, you know, uh, catastrophic illegal uh, allegations against one of them, multiple broken marriages against them. And you're going like, why would I want to follow that lifestyle? Like, yeah, you're rich, but you're miserable. Why why would I want to follow? Why do we as Americans fall prey to that? And, And I would suggest this is in our DNA far more than even the first point. That we have some sort of subconscious thing working in our minds that equates wealth with skill and wisdom and excellence. I mean, how many PCA churches, if you were to go back and actually document out all of the officer nominations for the last 20 years, how closely do they follow the income brackets of the people inside the church? I'll be honest, I think this is another one where Evangelicals are tempted, folks like us are tempted to, to fall prey to this. How many conversations have we heard? Well, uh, the way I would live differently if I had won the lottery. If only I had enough money to buy the good life. Really? The thing that's keeping us from the good life is money? We're the richest people in human history, and we don't have enough money for the good life? Man. Well, what about Paul? What about Jesus? Oh, no. Twenty-one, twenty-two. he takes it one step further even. You can't find it through science and industry. You can't find it by purchase through wealth. Here, well, uh, you can't find it through dumb luck. Wisdom's just not there to be found. You're not going to luck into it. It's not the old, a stopped clock is right twice a day. Sorry, that's not how wisdom works. From then, where does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? Guess what? It's hidden from the eyes of all living Concealed from the birds of the air. I I love how even here in verse 22, he gives a a bit of an illustration where it's even like death is saying, 
Yeah, I heard about that guy once, but I couldn't even find it myself. A place that you can't go to and come back, death, is like, oh yeah, I think it's on the other side somewhere. You can't just stumble in to wisdom. You can't stumble into the good life. Well, what is the answer? I just finished preaching through Proverbs not that long ago. You should know the answer before. Uh, I preached it. I hope you still do now. Uh, God is the source of all wisdom. Wisdom is with God. God understands the way to wisdom. He knows its place. He's the one who sees all of the earth before him. He knows everything under the heavens. He is the one who has ordered creation to function the way that it functions. He's the one that designed it. He's the one who set it into motion. He wrote the instruction manual. Yesterday, well, last week, I guess, we bought a new grill. Yesterday, put it together. Llewellyn and I put it together. And the 76 steps or whatever it is of assembling this new grill. A number of points throughout the afternoon of putting it together, thinking, man, what was in the mind of the person who drew this? Because I don't know what they're drawing, but it doesn't match what I'm seeing. How is it that the manual mismatches reality so much? Well, because the, the mind of the person who designed the way it is, it's so matter. God is the opposite. He knows the world. He's the one who wrote it. He created it. He ordained it. He knows how it functions. It's his perfect plan. He decreed the rain. He decreed the lightning. He decreed the waters. He has decreed it all. So Job ends with this beautiful statement. The fear of the Lord, that, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. You see, this is what the Bible has to offer that no, nowhere, it's found nowhere else and, and no one else has answered to is that God the Father is the source of all wisdom and He has placed it inside the created order in the person of His Son. That process is called revelation. When God is revealing, what, what is he revealing? Well, we've talked about this often here, but he, he himself is the primary content of revelation. But in doing so, that is where wisdom comes from. It's God showcasing who he is. Because we are designed in his image... When we live according to his character in the forgiving work of Christ Jesus, that is wisdom. That is the good life. And praise God, it has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with dumb luck. It has everything to do with the person and work of the triune God. God the Father revealing himself in creation, in the person of the Son, 
The Spirit illumining the minds and the hearts of His people so that they and we were able to understand what God has placed inside creation. So that God is the fountain of all wisdom. So that God's perfect grace transforms mankind. And again, I think this is a point that conceptually we all kind of intellectually understand if you've been in the church for a while. Yay, God is wisdom. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Let's move on. But one of those points that though we understand intellectually, we tend to not put it into practice in our hearts. And uh, just as one brief case study of what this looks like at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes an, a, a tremendous application of this have my bookmark there, but yet I chose to flip every single page to get there. (laughs) Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church is filled with money. They have lots of rich people, they have lots of poor people, and uh, as they've interacted with each other, they've run into tremendous problems because uh, I would suggest the rich are probably exploiting the, uh, the poor at the time. So much so that it's ended up where they've had lawsuits. And the lawsuits most likely were between the rich people suing each other. Which is really amazing to think about because uh, our best kind of theologian, Bible history type people think the Corinthian church was not much larger than all of Christ Ridge put together. Which is a, a tremendous laundry list of major problems in such a small church. It's really shocking. But it's interesting about the the answer to going to the pagan courts for lawsuits, what Paul's answer is in verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why would you dare take a court case? Why would you dare take something so important as justice to a pagan? who has no knowledge of God and therefore has no wisdom. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among brothers? Paul's reasoning here is really impressive. Wisdom is found in God alone. Which means that people, no matter how smart they are, no matter how high their IQ is, if they do not know God, they are fools. So why don't we go to somebody that's reliable to prosecute our court cases? And the best place to do that is inside the church, because that's where wise people are to be found. If wisdom is to be found in God, he's only found in his people, which are in the church. So settle your court cases amongst wise people, not smart people. Maybe smart, maybe not. doesn't matter. And I think this is an intriguing application that Paul does. Is He's taking this truth that we know in our minds that wisdom is to be found in God, and he's pushing it down to the heart and then out to the hands to say, let's put it into practice. If we believe wisdom is found in God, let's trust the people who know God to do the work. And that's not to say that we don't, you know, take our antibiotics when we need it because we don't know if it's a Christian who invented it or not. I'm not saying those things. But I am saying, let's look to God's people, let's look to God's wisdom to shape our lives. I remember in Sunday school, in Christ Covenant Church across town, approximately 30 years ago, a Sunday school teacher belaboring the point to say, 
that if you know the Lord Jesus at nine years old, you're wiser than the smartest person who never did. As a little nine-year-old, whoo, boy, man, that made me feel good, didn't it? Right? You kiddos, all of you kiddos, if you know Jesus, you're wiser than the smartest person who never did. Very quickly. First, this should impact how we live as God's people, for it should be kind of really pushing us to the Bible. If we believe that God is wisdom and the source of all wisdom, and he's revealed himself in his word, we should be active at looking at the word. I'll take that Presbyterian as I am. Second, not only should we be active at looking at the Word, but we should be active at looking at Jesus. If Jesus is the revelation of God incarnate, He is the Logos, He is the Word of God incarnate, He is God's truth to mankind, we should really pay attention to Him. And again, this is going to put us out of lockstep with the American culture, right? Right now, it's still very trendy to believe in a God. It is not trendy to believe in the biblical Christ. The one who says, oh, by the way, there's one way to heaven and all others don't go there. Lastly, and I would step on your toes on purpose here, but only because I love you. I would encourage you humbly to not assume your views are accurate just because you're a Christian, but instead to go to the Bible. Now, this is one that I I watch happen with great regularity, where people think just because we're Christians, we're right. It's the the unbalanced counterpoint of what I said earlier. If you know Jesus, you're already wiser than the the smartest of man that doesn't. But that doesn't mean that you always understand the Bible correctly. And so it doesn't mean that your politics are always correct. It doesn't mean that your understanding of culture is always correct. It doesn't mean that we immediately have like the blinders taken off our life and we instantaneously see with brilliance and clarity and beauty everything around us. In fact, I would actually contend we need to be aggressive at self-examination of taking our minds and filtering them through the scriptures to find out where we're wrong all over the place. I was talking with a different pastor yesterday, and that was one of the great struggles that he had been expressing was this uh, quarantine season had exposed in his people so much of their faulty thinking, but they hadn't really been ready to deal with it, and he was exhausted from the counseling because he'd had body folks that just weren't ready to engage the fact that they might be wrong about things. And just because it was their opinion doesn't mean it's gospel truth. Again, instead, may we be those people that make a big deal of the Bible, make a big deal of Jesus, and make a big deal of self-examination according to this book. That God would transform how we think 
and feel and act. For we know that the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. O God in heaven, we do pray that you would make us wise. We need your spirit to do that. There's a way that seems right to a man in the end. It leads to death. And we are so quick to want to try that path. Forgive us for our foolishness. And oh Lord, give us that fear. Would your spirit equip us to turn away from evil. For Christ's sake. Amen.